Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken by the wind? Why then did you go out? To see a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, those who wear soft raiment are in king's houses. Why then did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The Gospel of the Lord. seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, many of you know that the place I attended for my undergraduate degree was strict, like makes the Naval Academy look like a walk in the park, strict. It was the sort of place that if anyone, anyone in authority said that they needed to talk to you, you knew immediately it was because you were in trouble. That was the only reason they needed to talk to you. So anytime my dorm supervisor needed to talk to me, I knew that I was in for it. Well, after a year there, I couldn't take it, so I sat out a semester and then transferred to a small Christian college outside of Salem, and comparatively to me, this place was like Woodstock. <laughs> I mean, people would wear their pajamas to class instead of the khakis and collared shirts and ties that I was used to. You could actually walk on the same sidewalk as the opposite gender. People may have even held hands or kissed. It was truly Parisian, out of control. My first week there, I was setting up my dorm room and I got a call from my new dorm supervisor. He wanted me to come down because he needed to talk to me. Heart in my throat, palms sweaty. 
Turns out he just wanted to make sure that I was doing okay as I moved in, and turns out he was a really nice guy who was actually there to just, you know, be a friend and a guide as I navigate this thing called college, not a tyrant. And over the years, and still ongoing, I have to recalibrate my view of people in authority because they're not always what I expect them to be. Our gospel lesson this evening is all about recalibration. There's an interesting turn uh, in the history of interpretation of our gospel text this evening. Until the modern period, almost all of those who were commenting on this story assumed that John the Baptist was not having a crisis of faith, but is doing something else. But then in the modern period, it's the exact opposite. Almost every commentator who writes about this passage assumes that John is really struggling with misplaced expectations. That's in fact how I've preached this text. That just like me with my dorm supervisor, John needed a recalibration. But the more that I've sat with the ancient church's understanding of this text and the more that John has come into focus for me as the culmination of a long line of Old Testament prophets who do very bizarre things to get their message across. I've come to the realization that I think that John really is doing something different than most modern commentators say that he is. You see, John still has disciples. And I think that he knows at a certain level that he shouldn't have disciples anymore. They should be pointed to his cousin, to the Christ. And these disciples of his, they are the ones who needed to have their view, their understanding of Jesus recalibrated. And Matthew, in his literary genius, has set up this story in such a way that we become John's disciples. We are the ones who are sent by the messenger to meet the word and to see him for what he is and to ask him this all-important question. This is the question that humanity has to ask. Are you the one? The one that we've been waiting for or do we look for another? So the followers of John go to Jesus and ask this very question. Remember that John was all vim and vinegar, fire and brimstone, and his followers don't see the same thing as the core platform of Jesus' campaign. And so John sends them that they might recalibrate their ideas about the Christ. Now, if John's disciples' idea of Jesus had a bit too much habanero, ours tends to have far too much sugar. But just the same, we find ourselves in situations that will force us to recalibrate our idea of who Jesus is. And so John's question becomes our question. Are you the one? I think some of us still have this idea of Jesus as the best friend who is there to say, yes, buy it, you totally deserve it. Or as some sort of emotion modulator who keeps us from feeling anything too strongly. Or maybe even a fairy godmother whose main task is wish fulfillment. And then we encounter the living word. As he teaches us to give to the poor, to take up our cross, to die to self, and to find freedom in enslaving ourselves to him. 
And we find ourselves locked in the prison of materialism and greed and self-fulfillment and lack of restraints. And despite what you might think or what our culture might try to convince you, it is a prison. And we find ourselves faced with the same choice as John's disciples. We can either maintain our expectations and begin looking for another Savior who matches them. Or we can have our expectations shifted to match the true and living word who is himself life and light. This mismatched expectation isn't hypothetical either. It's part of the human condition, as St. John the theologian tells us in the prologue to his gospel account. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The humility and grace that frames the incarnation of Christ is so out of step with how we think about power and might that from the very first Christmas until this upcoming one, we have struggled to believe that this could really be God in the flesh, God with us. The incarnation is one of the most radical and subversive acts ever to appear in human history, and it reveals the deep joy of the God who is and who brings being into the world. And if you'll allow me a really brief aside, I think that many of us maybe fail to sense this visceral joy because we have neglected Mary. The Theotokos, the God-bearer, even prenatal John leapt for joy when the mother of his Lord drew near. And every time we encounter Mary in the gospel accounts, she is either singing out in praise of God or she is sitting quietly contemplating all the things that have come to pass around her. Mary is the one who sings out, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor upon his lowly servant. Mary is the one who sees the kings come from the east and worship her baby boy. Mary is the one who ponders these things in her heart. Mary is told that the sword will pierce this heart. And she stands at the foot of the cross as she watches her child, the one that she taught to speak, the one whose food she chewed up so he could swallow it, the one that she held at night when he was feverish, the one who she smiled and laughed as her own flesh and blood took his first step, the one that she cried with when he got his first cut, knowing as only a mother could what pain and sorrow would await. Mary held on her lap in her arms the salvation of her own soul and the whole world. If you want to understand the joy of the incarnation, look at the light in her face. And even Mary, it's hinted to us in the Gospels, had to recalibrate her ideas of her own Savior Son from time to time. The incarnation is joy and grace and humility, and it is utterly confounding. And if you follow a Jesus who doesn't require you to reestimate him, you've got the wrong man. He will not fit into your categories. 
And the way that we go about recalibrating our understanding of Jesus is laid out for us ingeniously in Matthew's writing here. The way that Jesus answers John's followers isn't to say, go and tell John that I say this or that or that I've done X, Y, or Z. He says, no. Go and tell John what you see and hear. It's present tense. What Matthew is doing here is he's telling you to go back to the beginning of his gospel and look at what you see and hear. You're supposed to go back and read these beginning chapters of Matthew's gospel again to see again Jesus healing a man with leprosy, to see him give life and healing to the centurion's servant, to see him heal Peter's mother and the dozens that were brought to him, to see him heal a paralyzed man and hear him preach the Sermon on the Mount, the good and difficult news of the gospel, of the gospel that the law isn't just about externals, it's about the heart. But you have to recognize that you're not doing a research project. When you read the scriptures in the context of the prayer life of the apostolic church, the spirit attends and you truly encounter the risen Christ. These things become reality around you. You're not just reading history. This is what Matthew is intent on showing us here. You see, Jesus is telling the crowds about John. But Matthew is telling us about Jesus. Jesus tells the crowds that John is the fulfillment of Malachi 3. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. But in Malachi, what it really says is, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, says the Lord Almighty. Do you see the subtle shift, the way that Matthew sets this up? Matthew is telling us that Jesus is God Almighty, the name, the one whose name can't even be mentioned. He's here. It's coming. Jesus tells the crowd that there is no one who has ever been born that is greater than John the Baptist, but that whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven, and his greatness is so far beyond the greatness of John the Baptist, it doesn't even register on the same scale. But even as we have our breath stolen by the surpassing greatness of Jesus, he turns us again toward joy. It wasn't read for you just now, but he ends this little section of the story by quoting a little proverb about the people being unhappy with John and him, right? We, we sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. We, sang a, we played the flute for you and you did not laugh. Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunk, which means he is nothing if not joyful. And he befriends the likes of us, tax collectors and sinners, every one of us. Wherever you have found yourself this evening as you entered this place, if you feel imprisoned by anxiety or anger, or bowed down with doubt and despair, or hemmed in and brittle with bitterness, if you're sleepwalking with pain from the past or the drudgery of the present, I invite you in this place right now to encounter the risen Christ. Because he is here among us. And if you have not yet met him, ask him to speak in this silence in a moment. 
And if you have been baptized into his church, but you need your idea of him recalibrated by reality, I invite you to come and know him in reality as you grind your teeth upon the bread and the sting of the wine hits your tongue. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.